In this second half of the third lecture, we are going to get into the role of courts in constitutional review of legislation. So in the first half of the lecture, we talked about how the courts constrain the executive to make sure that the executive stays within the proper scope of the source of its power, be that a prerogative or be that legislation. We saw how if the executive purports to do something without a legal basis, the courts will step in and may set aside the decision. So we are now going to look at the other way that the judiciary, the judicial branch, performs a check on another branch of government. In this case, how the judiciary ensures that the legislature stays within the scope of its constitutional powers. And this is going to be more or less the subject we're going to spend the rest of the course on, the division of powers section and then the charter section will both deal primarily with how the judiciary ensures the legislature stays within the scope of its constitutional authority. The section on Aboriginal rights and title will also explain how the protected uh, Aboriginal and treaty rights set out in section 35 of the Constitution constrain the legislature's action. But before we get into the specifics of how the courts are going to analyze division of powers and charter and Aboriginal rights and title questions, I want to, in this class, talk a bit about the big picture theory behind the project of courts engaging in constitutional review of legislation. It's not something that's done in every jurisdiction, and it remains to some extent controversial in the sense that when a court strikes down a law as being unconstitutional, some feel that they are overstepping their institutional role and are interfering with the ability of the elected parliament to act as the holder of sovereign power within Canada. So we'll start with a discussion of why, in fact, the courts feel they have the ability to declare a law to be of no force and effect because it is inconsistent with the Constitution. And a good place to start is the seminal United States case of Marbury and Madison. This is a decision of the famous Chief Justice John Marshall, who was the longest serving Chief Justice in United States Supreme Court history and I think the fourth longest serving justice of any kind. He served as chief justice for I think, 34 years. And Marbury and Madison was the first case that he issued as chief justice. In that case, he presents a robust defense of the idea of judicial review by the courts of legislation to ensure it is consistent with the Constitution. And you, you have the important part of his decision in your textbook at pages 528 to 530. And it's worth reading. It's well written. and It's a good piece of judicial reasoning. In essence, though, you can distill the reasoning to this. And that is, he says, the Constitution 
is framed as the supreme law of the land, and it cannot be changed in the ordinary course by the legislature. And he says, if that is to be the case, then surely the courts cannot apply a law that is inconsistent with the Constitution, because to do so would be to demean its status as the supreme law of the land. If you could, by an ordinary statute, override the principles that are set out in the Constitution, you would, in effect, have amended the Constitution or disregarded the Constitution. It would be as if the Constitution didn't say what it says. If you could do things as a legislature inconsistent with that Constitution and still have the courts give them effect. So Chief Justice Marshall was saying that the courts, by engaging in judicial review of the constitutionality of legislation and ensuring that unconstitutional legislation was not enforced by the courts, are protecting the place of the Constitution within the United States framework. They are protecting its status as the supreme law. They are avoiding a situation through which the legislature could, in effect, amend the Constitution by simply passing legislation inconsistent with it and having that legislation be given force and effect. So you can think about, take a free speech protection. If the Constitution says, as the U.S. Constitution does, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So the Constitution explicitly limits the powers of the U.S. Congress to making laws that abridge freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Well, what would be the effect of giving force to a law that said that no newspaper shall be published that is critical of the government? The effect would be that there is no guarantee of freedom of speech or freedom of the press. The effect would be the same as amending the Constitution to get rid of that guarantee. Because if you're not going to give force to the guarantee, then it's as if you got rid of the guarantee. So Chief Justice Marshall, at the beginning of Marbury and Madison, says that the role of the courts in judicial review is a question deeply interesting to the United States. But he says it's deeply interesting, but it's not of an intricacy proportional to that interest. So he says, it's an interesting question. It's not a hard one, though. Simply put, if you're going to have a supreme law that stands above ordinary statutes that can be amended only through a specific formula that can't be changed merely at the will of the legislature, then you cannot allow laws to be given force that are inconsistent with that supreme law because to do so would be to make that law no longer supreme. It would be to accomplish, in effect, an amendment of that constitution or a abolishment of that constitution. In Canada, the story is a little bit different in that originally there was a somewhat roundabout way to get to a legitimacy of judicial review by courts of the constitutionality of legislation. Specifically, there was the Colonial Laws Validity Act, which said 
that a colonial law inconsistent with an act of the imperial parliament will be void and ineffective. Now, that was a technical basis to allow courts to strike down laws that were inconsistent with the Constitution Act 1867 because, as we're going to come back to in this course, the Constitution Act 1867, and indeed even the Constitution Act 1982, were in fact passed by the UK Parliament, the Imperial Parliament. And so laws inconsistent with the Constitution Act 1867 pursuant to the Colonial Laws Validity Act were of no force and effect, were void. However, in 1982, you get the Constitution Act 1982, which results in the patriation of the Canadian Constitution. Again, we'll get back to this later, but the idea that the Constitution would now be amendable by the Canadian Parliament. It was their constitution. You wouldn't have to go back to the UK Parliament in order to change the constitutional law of Canada. Importantly also, the Constitution Act 1982 expressly contemplated judicial review of legislation for constitutionality. Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982 reads, The Constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada, and any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is, to the extent of the inconsistency, of no force or effect. And of course, who is it who gives force or effect to a law? Well, it's the judiciary. They interpret the law and say that it will be applied and, and give it force. So if the Constitution calls for laws that are inconsistent with the Constitution to be given no force and effect, that is calling on the judiciary to ensure that the laws that are applied in Canada are given force and effect, are consistent with the Constitution. So the Constitutional Review of Legislation post-1982 is explicitly called for in the Constitution. You can remember pre-1982, you had this idea that the Constitution was a imperial statute and laws inconsistent with the imperial statute that was in effect in Canada were deemed invalid under the Colonial Laws Validity Act. You can also remember, though, and I wouldn't worry too much about that theoretical basis for judicial review prior to 1982. I wouldn't worry too much about it because it wasn't an exceptionally controversial idea in Canada that the courts would judicially review the constitutionality of laws prior to 1982. Why was it not that controversial? Well, the reason was the grounds for judicial review of legislation was really quite narrow. The only constitutional ground that you could advance to challenge a law was that that law violated the division of powers. It was a law that was rightfully within the competency of the other legislature. That is to say, if it was federal law that was being challenged, you would say that was within the competency of the provincial legislatures and the federal government overstepped. If, on the other hand, it was provincial law that was being challenged, you would argue that it was within the exclusive competency of the federal legislature. This is the division of powers question that we're going to spend the next two classes delving into at length. 
But what is important to remember from the outset is that the division of powers analysis is a sorting question. It's not a question of whether anyone has the power to pass this law. It's simply a question of is it the federal or provincial? And the idea of parliamentary sovereignty, parliamentary supremacy that we talked about earlier in the course, that idea says there's no law that is beyond the scope of parliament together. The sum total of the provincial and federal legislatures have absolute power to pass any law. That's the theoretical idea. So the consequence of striking a law down on a division of powers basis is not that extreme. You're saying you couldn't pass that law, however, the other legislative body could. It's not a question of whether the law can be passed, it's simply a question of by whom can the law be passed. It isn't until 1982 that you get the charter and you get limits on the legislation that can be passed by either level of government. The charter says, doesn't matter if it's a federal law or a provincial law, you can't violate these fundamental rights. You can't violate the equality right. You can't violate the freedom of religion, the freedom of expression rights. We're going to get into these, and there is some nuance to that that I will explore. But generally speaking, the scope of the substance of what can be considered in a judicial review widens greatly, exponentially, within charter review, which is not just different in volume of how many constitutional challenges there are, and not just different in terms of how exacting the court has to be to get through a charter review, but it's in fact different in kind because what you're saying is parliament and the legislatures, your powers are limited. True parliamentary sovereignty and supremacy, the idea you can pass any law you want, is being limited now by these constitutional rights which take precedence over your ability to pass any law at all. And this is akin to what the U.S. government recognized in Marbury and Madison because, of course, the United States had a constitutionalized Bill of Rights much earlier, from 1791. But in the Canadian experience, once the scope of judicial review of legislation was greatly expanded by the enactment of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the enactment of a constitutionalized Bill of Rights, this came along with that Section 52, which explicitly invited the courts to engage in judicial review of the constitutionality of legislation. So there wasn't the same controversy ever about the legitimacy of judicial review on constitutional grounds to the same extent as there was in the U.S., because when the source of the judicial power to review for constitutionality was a bit less clear with the Imperial Laws Validity Act, etc., the stakes of constitutional review were not as high. It was that sorting mechanism of simply which level of government, which, which of the legislatures can pass this law. When the stakes got higher with the constitutionalized Bill of Rights and the idea that there are going to be some limits on what either parliament can do, well, there was an explicit provision of the Constitution now that judges could point to 
to legitimize their project of judicial review. And an interesting case you have in the book, the next case is this Operation Dismantle. If you look at the date, it's 1985. So it's a very early charter case to make it to the Supreme Court of Canada. And this is this exciting period where the court has these new powers through the Constitution Act of 1982 and these new responsibilities and is grappling with how it is going to exercise these powers and discharge these responsibilities. And the case here was a constitutional challenge to the testings of missiles in Canada. The idea put forward by the people challenging the government action was that the testing of missiles in Canada is going to increase the threat of war. It's going to increase the threat of nuclear war to have these cruise missiles that are going to increase the capacity of the United States. It was the United States doing this testing. Increase the capacity of the United States to wage nuclear war. And you're thinking this is kind of late Cold War period. And the case came up to the Supreme Court of Canada in a procedurally important way to understand what happened in this case, in that you had a statement of claim, a, a lawsuit filed, then you had a motion to strike the lawsuit, saying this has no chance of success, strike it, don't make us go through a trial, go through those expenses. That motion to strike is unsuccessful at the trial level, but it succeeds at the Court of Appeal. So the appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada is from the successful strikeout of the claim at the Court of Appeal level. So the question before the court is, ought we to allow the appeal, set aside the Court of Appeal decision that struck out the claim, said you cannot go forward, and instead allow this charter challenge to proceed? And the important judgment is the judgment of Madam Justice Wilson, and it's worth taking a moment to appreciate Madam Justice Bertha Wilson, really a remarkable figure in Canadian law. She was the first female Supreme Court of Canada justice, the first female associate and first female partner at the leading law firm of Osler. And she was the first woman appointed to the Court of Appeal for Ontario. And then at the Supreme Court of Canada, she was a leading voice on the early interpretation of charter rights and wrote a number of the leading decisions that are still regularly cited today. So in this Operation Dismantle, she wrote concurring reasons. The other judges, the, the majority of the court, didn't sign on to her reasons. They rather dismissed the case on a more narrow basis, saying, just factually, you're never going to prove what you're alleging in this claim, so it ought not to go forward. She said, well, we're going to accept what you allege that you can prove that you're going to be able to prove it, but I'm going to, to look into the question of whether the court ought to be deciding this case of whether or not there's a charter violation caused by the state deciding to allow the testing of cruise missiles within Canada. And Justice Wilson says, indeed, this is justiciable. This is something that we ought to be considering. And that is because when it is alleged that state action has violated the Constitution or will violate the Constitution, she says, it is not only appropriate but necessary 
for the courts to review that action. And so in this way, she also claims for the courts this role of guardian of the Constitution in a very forceful way within this judgment. Now, she goes on to say that this claim that a increase in the risk of war caused by allowing an ally to test a weapon is outside the scope of what the Charter protects. So she gets to the merits and says, I don't agree with your assertion that this is inconsistent with the Charter. However, she says, when you're alleging that there's an unconstitutional action that's happening, that will be justiciable. Again, that idea of justiciability, that idea of whether the court ought to hear and decide a matter. Now, I'm going to move fairly quickly through the balance of the uh, cases discussed in this section of the book, and that is because many of the ideas touched upon in these cases we are going to come back to in greater detail as we go through the charter section of this course. And you'll have a better and more full understanding of the issues so that those cases will probably be more easily understood at that time. But I do want to introduce some of the major ideas um, somewhat quickly. So the Doucette Boudreau case is a, a fascinating question about the limits of the role of the courts in enforcing the Constitution. And what you had in the Doucette-Boudreau case was a language case. It, it considered Section 23 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which deals with minority language educational rights. So Canada has two official languages, English and French. And if you live in a province where you speak one of those languages, but it's in the minority in that province, you have a right to send your child to public school in that language. Realistically, it's a French language rights provision, which allows parents to send their francophone children to French school outside of Quebec. And what you had in Nova Scotia was this charter provision is clear that there's this right, and they just didn't do it. They just didn't get around to actually building the schools in the areas where they were needed to allow French families to send their children to French school within Nova Scotia. So a court challenge was brought and ultimately the Nova Scotia Superior Court made a order that said that best efforts had to be done to accomplish getting these schools up and running. And also that the government had to report back to the judge who made the order to let the court know how the progress was coming. The idea this sort of a check-in would presumably ensure that the government would proceed with their real best efforts. So this raised the question of whether the court could make that type of an order and generally speaking, courts do not retain a supervisory jurisdiction over their orders. What they do is they make an order and they become what is called functus officio. They are done with the matter. Once you make your order, once you make your pronouncement, you are done and you have to rely on the public to follow your order or 
the executive to enforce your order with the power of the state. And I will say the degree to which orders of the court are voluntarily complied with in Canada is remarkable. It is quite rare that we have to get to the level of the executive enforcing court orders against individuals. Usually people recognize and abide by judgments. So in this case, though, the court said, the majority of the Supreme Court said, it was indeed permissible for the Nova Scotia Supreme Court judge to require that there be reporting as to how these best efforts were coming along. Not detailed management, that wouldn't be appropriate, but a reporting requirement has some pressure, and the courts said this can be within the proper judicial function. What I think is most interesting about this case is not the majority judgment finding that there can be that reporting, but the strength of the dissent saying this is a mistake. You ought not to ever have this type of reporting requirement. And the dissenting judgment, a strong dissent by Justices LaBelle and Deschamps with Justices Major and Binney concurring, so four out of the nine judges, said no. This is wrong. This is a violation of the separation of powers. So here's that idea coming back. This is overstepping the judicial role. It is not for the courts to enforce their judgments, simply to pronounce on the law. They said the court is functus officio. Its power must end after it has decided the controversy before it. So when you're thinking about the role of the courts and the Constitution and ensuring the Constitution is followed, the Doucette-Boudreau case is frankly better thought of as an exception, but what's important is the rule. And the rule is that the court has its primary role simply to pronounce on the law, to make judgments. It is not its job to enforce these judgments. And so the project of ensuring compliance with the Constitution requires the courts, yes, to make and pronounce judgments, but it requires the citizenry to respect those judgments, to respect the constitutional determinations of the court, and it requires the executive to, where necessary, use the force of the state to uphold those judgments, which are aimed at protecting the Constitution, the constitutional order of Canada. The next case I'll touch on briefly is the uh, Manitoba language rights case. And this was a fascinating and fun case. So the Manitoba Act brings Manitoba into Canada. We're going to come back to the Manitoba Act towards the end of the course when we look at the Manitoba Métis case. And the Manitoba Act essentially became part of the Canadian Constitution. Um, technically, it was entrenched by the Imperial Parliament, so it could not be changed by the Canadian or provincial legislatures. It was eventually explicitly recognized as part of Canada's Constitution through the passage of the Constitution Act 1982. And the Manitoba Act had language requirements. It required that statutes be in both English and French, and that judges be bilingual. So then the Manitoba legislature passed the English Language Act, 
which called for only English to be used in Manitoba in the courts and in the statute books. So the Manitoba passed a piece of legislation that was inconsistent with the Manitoba Act. It was challenged a long time ago. It was challenged in 1892, and the court said, nope, this is inconsistent with the Manitoba Act. This English Language Act can't govern because it is inconsistent with the Manitoba Act that requires English and French language statutes. Well, Manitoba simply doesn't follow that decision. They just go on acting as if the English Language Act was in fact valid, and they pass all their statutes for the next hundred years only in English. So you come to the Supreme Court of Canada and they say, well, what do we do with this? You have a plain violation of the Constitution of the Manitoba Act. It's been going on forever. It's been in direct contravention of a judicial decision. But if we were to say that all these statutes that have been passed in contravention of the Manitoba Act suddenly are of no force and effect, we would basically be descending Manitoba into quasi-anarchy, or at least significantly undermining the rule of law within Manitoba because we would be taking out all these essential statutes that govern very basic functions of society. And here the court looks to the principle of the rule of law and says, we're not going to do that. What are we going to do instead? They're going to employ a technique we're going to study in greater detail later in the course, which is a suspended declaration of invalidity. That's where you say, this law is invalid, it's unconstitutional. However, there would be a problem if I were to make my declaration that that law is unconstitutional effective immediately. In this case, it would strike down all of Manitoba's laws. That would be a big problem. So instead, I'm going to say, listen, you're on notice. This is unconstitutional. You have one year until my order takes effect or whatever period the court chooses. During that time, you can fix it. You can go back to the legislature and fix things. However, after a year has passed, this law will be of no force in effect. We're going to come back to this idea of suspended declarations of validity later in the course when we talk about the charter, but I want to introduce it there, and it also ties in nicely to the idea of the rule of law, another one of those principles that we saw in the first class coming up again as we get into the constitutional jurisprudence. The final case you have in the casebook on the judicial review of legislation is Vrend in Alberta. It's a fascinating case. We're going to come back to it in much greater detail later in the course. Basically what you had there was a Alberta human rights law excluded sexual orientation as a basis for protection. So they said you can't discriminate on the basis of race, you know, gender, religion, but there was nothing about sexual orientation, and this was challenged and ultimately found to be a violation of Section 15, the equality provision of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The interesting thing is, what do you do? Do you strike down this human rights law and thereby say, you know, well, you didn't include 
um, sexual orientation that was discriminatory. And as a result, we're going to strike down this law and take away protection from everybody. That doesn't sound like a very good solution. And what the court ultimately did was they said, we're going to read sexual orientation protection into the law. We're going to get back to this. It's a controversial idea, but there's an explanation for it I'll give later in the course that I think makes it perhaps make a little bit more sense. What I want you to take away, though, for present purposes is the idea that the court refers to a dialogue that it may have with the legislature. And the court is saying, look, we're not going to be the last word on this constitutional issue. We're going to do this remedy of reading in sexual orientation. But if the legislature would prefer to just take away protection from everybody, you know, it can do that. It can respond to our decisions. And that's a fundamental idea I want you to keep. The idea that the courts expect the legislature to read and respond to their decisions. So if they get something wrong, if they overstep in their uh, remedy, or they send something back for reconsideration by the legislature, they're expecting the legislature to take their words seriously, to respond, and they'll see the legislation that's passed as the legislative response to their decision. And the courts will often afford more deference to a legislature the second time it tries to balance a tricky constitutional issue. I don't want to worry too much about this idea right now because it is something we're going to come back to later again when we talk about the charter. But that's the main thing I want you to take away from Vrend is that idea of a dialogue that the court's saying, we expect the legislature to have a response to this decision. And if we are wrong in our understanding of the legislative intent, they'll have an opportunity to act within their Role. The final thing I'm not going to talk about in length, but um, that you have in your book, are these remarks of Chief Justice McLaughlin on judging and taking on criticism of judicial activism. And this is a consideration I want you to have in mind throughout our consideration of division of powers, especially charter and Aboriginal rights law, is how far ought judges to go in deciding important social issues? This is a issue that I want to raise in our small group discussions. I think it's quite important to grapple with what would be the proper limits of the courts in weighing social issues, in deciding issues of fundamental importance to the society. Can the courts go too far in deciding these key constitutional issues because fundamentally they are unelected. They're not accountable to the populace through a vote. And through constitutional review, they can strike down the law of the elected legislatures. Justice McLaughlin, Chief Justice McLaughlin, gives a robust defense of the role of courts, but I want you to Keep that idea in mind, and, and we can explore it further within our discussions, and I hope we do as we get into the constitutional review of legislation. So that is the introduction, though, that I wanted to give. I want you to think about the legitimacy 
of constitutional review, the idea that if you're going to have a supreme constitution, then it needs to not be able to be ignored and overridden by legislation that's inconsistent with that constitution. I want you to remember that the idea of judicial review for constitutionality was itself formally recognized in the constitution under section 52. And then the idea that the courts have said, if there's a constitutional issue, you know, we, it's not just that we ought to decide it, it's necessary that we decide these issues. It's necessary that we apply and interpret the constitution. And then I want you to think, but the courts don't enforce their judgments. The courts just make these judgments and it's up to the people and it's up to the executive to enforce these judgments. And then I want you to take away this idea of what are the proper limits on how far the court is going to go in, and some would say overturning the will of the people, you know, other would say enforcing these fundamental values. This is a, a key question for discussion and further analysis. So with that, I hope we have a good basis to next class, start really diving into the meat of this course, and that is the judicial review of legislation for constitutionality and starting with the division of powers.